Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Holy moly, do we have a fascinating one today. You know, for a change, Ben Smith on his new book, Traffic. This is... For all you sophisticates like me, who know the ins and outs of the history of how in the aught 2000s, New York City became tech's media center. These were smart, cool sophisticates, creating things like BuzzFeed and Gawker and HuffPo and the new kind of social media. These people were hip. They were clever. They were gossipy and flirted at hipster parties, just just the kind of thing I had no clue about. That's why I found traffic so at times fascinating and other times kind of disturbing. These were smart hipsters who took no prisoners and changed history. And one of the smartest and actually most responsible uh, one of them, Ben Smith, is with me to discuss their remarkable successes and failures in the early era of social media. Another word for traffic was clicks, and clicks are good. Clicks were money. The more clicks, the more money. They're all getting lots of traffic, you see, but then something happened. Facebook and Google kind of ruin it all because they're getting so many clicks that the value of a single click becomes much smaller, and these smaller websites stop making money. As Ben says... That is a perfect summary. The core problem was that we were selling this commodity that, we, that turned out to be unlimited in its quantity. And so the price went down. Now, Gawker went out of business because the guy who started it, Nick Denton, had a different kind of um, ethic. Gawker had a different ethic, as Ben described it. It was, quote, to rip the mask off the hypocritical mainstream. People didn't want to read high-minded politics what they really wanted was pornography. And Gawker published a video of Hulk Hogan having sex with his friend's wife. And, well, uh, Hogan sued and Gawker lost. Well, billionaire Peter Thiel financed that lawsuit and put Gawker out of business. Now, that's the salacious highlight of the book and end of this podcast, but Ben Smith moved on from BuzzFeed to the New York Times and has a very serious, well-sourced, well-resourced news organization, Semaphore. And you should definitely check that, that website out for a top-of-the-line news source that isn't the New York Times or the Washington Post. So here we are with Ben Smith and traffic 
It's a great one. You know. For a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Ben, uh, thank you for joining uh, the podcast here. We'll talk about your book, Traffic, and talk about your new... Uh, what do you call semaphore? It's a new... What do you... What are the... What's the terminology for that kind of thing? News organization. News organization. That's what we it is. We used to say website, but it's, it's no longer so simple. Okay. It's, it, is it a news organization that is a website, though? Well, it's a news organization that has a website, but uh, more, people a read website. It, more people read us in email. Okay. Okay. All these are the distinctions that I should uh, really be so conversant in and am not conversant in. And uh, let me just from the very start of this say that I'm a little embarrassed that I did not know this stuff. I just didn't know this. I didn't know BuzzFeed very well. I didn't know uh, what was the uh, Gawker. I didn't know Gawker very well. I knew HuffPo uh, pretty well because I know Ariana. But I didn't know this world at, at all. And so this uh, whole book, a lot of it was news to me. And uh, some of it was gossipy, I will say. And when um, when I was a kid, I was told not to gossip. That didn't stop me from gossiping. There, there's a there's a prohibition in Jewish law against it. In fact, is is there? That I've occasionally been admonished about. Yeah, it's called lashon hara. This is funny. When I was, you remember Buck Henry, who co yeah. hosted a lot yeah. of SNLs early on. So first year of the show, like early on, we're sitting at Pastrami and Things, which is a restaurant then. At Thirty Rock, and he's just gossiping, and I go like, "I don't gossip," and he says, "I only gossip," and I thought like, "That's great." I <laughs> I love Buck. One, it was a joke, but also 
<laughs> so there's a lot of gossip in this in this book, but it's also a lot of information about very important stuff. And the gossip is a lot about the culture. You start the book with this guy, Jonah Peretti, and he's uh, buying some Nike shoes and you could put something on the side of the shoes. They custom print your shoe, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, he was, yes, he was a grad student at MIT and he was in, in the parlance of the day, which is the early 2000s, a culture jammer. I think is how he okay. would have identified. If you remember that, it was sort of like anti-corporate pranksterism. No, but uh, uh, yes, okay. Uh, now I, I mean, I didn't know the term until. Yeah, there's a magazine now. called Adbusters. I feel like I was faintly aware. Anyway, Jonah is this clever grad student who's a little bored, and and, he, and and Nike is doing a promotion, which then felt really radical and technically interesting. You could put any your name or another word and have it in, enter a form on the internet, and they would print sneakers with that word. And so he put the word sweatshop. <laughs> well, first he and put fuck, it, right? Right. First, yes. First he put profanity and was told he couldn't do profanity. Like, and right. then was put sweatshop. And a customer service representative wrote him and said it violated the terms of service and he couldn't do that either. He said it wasn't a word or something. And then he said, yes, it is a word. <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> it, it is a word. exactly what it means. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they go back and forth for a while. And then finally, you know, with, with this sort of pained customer service person explaining to him why he can't do it. <laughs> and finally, he concedes that he, he's not going to, he's, you know, that, he, that they won't make the shoe, but, or they won't put the word on it, but could they still send him just a blank shoe along with a picture of the seven-year-old Vietnamese girl who assembled it? Right. And, and then he thinks this is very clever. And so he tries to, right. and, and you've written something clever in 2001, what you do is you submit it to Harper's Index, the front of a widely read general interest magazine. And that, that, that assembles clever things, you know, and they reject him. And so he just okay. emails it to a few friends because he's sort of proud of himself. Yeah, here, see, this is funny. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that was the early sort of social media. People forward it to other people, forward it to other people. And pretty soon, it's one of those insane email forwards from that era that has gone everywhere. And he's on the Today Show debating a Nike representative about sweatshops, which he knows nothing about. And he has this feeling of like, what just happened to me? And they said this, we don't use Vietnamese girls, we use Burmese girls, the guy said. Well, what they actually said was, we're just so glad everybody's talking about our products, which was actually very <laughs> kind of ahead of their time. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, well, that's one of the lessons here is that you just want traffic. You don't care whether it's good or bad sometimes. Now, you were BuzzFeed. Uh, when did you start BuzzFeed with Jonah or jo Jonah I... started it, but he brought me in in 2011 from Politico to uh, to start a news organization, a news operation there. OK. And you guys had a news operation and a pretty serious news operation. Now, uh, there's this other guy, uh, other actor in, in, in this book, Nick Denton who sort of had a different ethos, which is would that be a correct way to put yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, because jo what Jonah sort of saw was that. And what he thought and what BuzzFeed is rooted in was that people would basically share funny, positive, lighthearted stuff that they would share to show how clever they were, to show what good people they were. But it would sort of be basically positive, just because what kind of crazy person would go out in public and yell about politics? No one. So, you know, obviously. And Nick Denton, who was a, who, a British journalist who'd, who'd started a tech, tried to start some tech companies and then moved to New York in, in the early 2000s also had this totally different idea, which was that the thing that social that, that this new digital media could do was sort of rip the mask off of the hypocritical mainstream. 
I mean, you know, it was it was as he's getting going, it's sort of the throws of, and then the, the the Iraq War. There's this huge sense that the mainstream media, particularly the Times, has totally screwed it up. Yep, um, they did. You know, and 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 so there, people are interested in alternative voices and people who are going to tell you what's really going on, not the sanitized version. And Denton sort of saw that digital media could do that, and also saw that it could using these metrics of traffic, it could tell you. It could kind of rip the hypocrisy off the audience too. It could tell you, it could say, look, people say they want to read about high-minded politics, but really they want pornography. And so we started a porn site. Mm-hmm. Just give, give the people what they want. And that was sort of more his ethos. And they did gossip too, right? Oh, for sure. Yes. It was fun. It started as kind of a media gossip blog, but I think he rejected the distinction between news and gossip. Yeah. And this is why I, and I, I, I can't swear it was Gawker, but I think it was Gawker. So one day, uh, something appears. Someone points out uh, Al Franken seen in this restaurant arguing with his daughter's boyfriend. And uh, I knew what the restaurant was. And it was actually my son and my daughter were there. And my son and I weren't arguing. <laughs> we were uh, discussing. I, I we always we had this ongoing, uh, the, well, okay, argument uh, about whether you could uh, have a, a space uh, ship or like a space station up in geosynchronous orbit, and we could get uh, fiber that was strong enough that you could instead of having to launch, uh, do a launch to send something up there. You could just send it up on like a space ladder, a ladder from Earth to this thing. <laughs> and so my son was an engineering major and he'd go, Dad, you can't, I mean, there's no mm. tensile strength that's going to, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I go, how do you know? How do you know? And, and that sounds like really boring gossip. Really boring gossip, but it's not even gossip. <laughs> right, it's so, gossip. So I, I was, I'd get mad. I go, I said, that's not gossip, and I'd just get mad at this shit. And that, that was me. <laughs> yep. And so I wasn't paying enough attention to this stuff. Um, all this stuff. Now, just let's make it clear that the traffic is the number of clicks. Is that right? Yeah, it's a measure of how many people have visited visit each person. Kind of have clicked downloading a copy of a thing from your server, which is a click. Yeah, that's a click. Okay, so I've always thought of clicks and, you know, so I didn't wasn't looking at that stuff. I was looking. uh, I guess I was in. I was on the uh, Judiciary Committee and on Antitrust Subcommittee, and I was really interested in things like, you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon having such a huge footprint in all of this shit. And monopsony, I think I was the first uh, member of the Senate to use the word monopsony, which is uh, Amazon, to sell anything, you had to sell to Amazon, right? Because that's a monopsony. Then, So they have, instead of control over people, people who are buying from you, you have control over people who are selling to you. That's right? Yep. Said, that makes sense to me. But basically what happens is, is uh, these uh, BuzzFeed, uh, your, your company, and Gawker and Gawker runs into trouble. We'll talk about that in a minute. But all all these uh, HuffPo are getting an incredible amount of traffic, and it's making a profit. But then, and this is very generalized summation of your book, uh, of a part of your book, is that uh, 
Facebook just kind of ruins it all. And, and I guess Google too, because they're just getting so many clicks that the value of a single click becomes much smaller and you guys stop making money. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually a, to- a great, that is a perfect summary. The core problem was that we were selling this commodity that, w- that turned out to be unlimited in its quantity. And so the price went down. Yeah. And then therefore, <laughs> you guys had like uh, BuzzFeed went out of business. BuzzFeed News did. BuzzFeed still exists. It's news operation. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's, that's very different. And uh, Gawker, of course, went out of business because they made a mistake, but it was part of the uh, his hubris. Is that uh, a characterization that's somewhat accurate? Um, uh, well, I think it kind of followed the logic of that kind of expose everything to a conclusion that was really legally dangerous, which involved publishing people's sex tapes. So he published a sex tape of Hulk Hogan with... Uh, someone that uh, that was a friend of the family or a, a wife's yeah, friend? Very complicated. Or? Yeah, he was, okay. he was Hulk Hogan and his friend's wife, I believe. Friend's wife. But, it was, but I think the point was it was private and a jury ruled that, like, this is not something that we should, anybody should publish. That suit was sort of financed by this uh, uh, well-known billionaire. Yeah, Peter Thiel led a real conspiracy to destroy them. And the ammunition they gave him was was publishing sex tips. And uh, so that put Gawker out of business. Yes. Okay. Uh, You know Frank Four, of course. Yes. A great journalist now for the, The Atlantic. Well, at one point, Frank was working for the New Republic, and one of these guys from, a rich guy from Facebook, bought the New Republic, which had to be bought (laughs) very frequently because it was not it doesn't make money and this guy was (laughs) had a lot of uh, money of course and so they had this newsroom and frank was the editor became the editor yep and uh this guy had the most high-minded uh ideas for uh the new republic but then he put in and i i can't remember how frank described it but some machine that would like make a sound every time they got a click or a certain amount of clicks and what's getting the clicks. And it kind of totally undermined everything <laughs> because everyone's going like, what got the fuck? Click? Oh shit. And it, it just sent the play. <laughs> they started going like, Oh, and, and then he, the editor who had bought this thing and had all the money in the world and could lose money just suddenly went click crazy. Do you know this? Yeah, but I, and I think this isn't something entirely new to the world, that someone in the, in the media business is led down a garden path by trying to get as big an audience <laughs> as possible. Oh, I, I thought say. that was the first time. Yeah, not the first time in history, but there was something like, you know, it was so, it's like everybody in media had always, you know, in news had always obviously been thinking about their audience in some ways, but suddenly like, you were flying with the instruments on and you'd been flying by sight before and you could see every little detail and you could see, I don't know. And, and I think people in some ways took the lessons too literally. And, 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 and you know, and the obvious logical conclusion of that is just you give people 
exactly whatever they want at all times. You know, you, you sort of you lose right. your, you sort of lose your own identity in just pandering relentlessly to what people want. Yeah, I know. It, it's like the New York Times on Monday reports like SNL this week had so and so play Bush for the first time. That kind of stuff. Yeah, people click on that, right? Or this yes, is a sure. sketch, you know, and doesn't feel like the New York Times. <laughs> doesn't, but you know, what's the harm? I guess. So, but that gets clicks, and that helps pay for for the New York Times, which is doing very well, and and is hiring a lot of people who were in this world, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the to me the surprises in writing the book is sort of realizing, oh, the winner of this whole episode of history is the New York Times, which had the incumbent people media fifteen years ago would have been said people would have said they were going out of business, and instead they were patient, they kind of watched and waited, in particular, sort of technical, but. They waited for Spotify and Netflix to train us all to pay to pay for things on our phones, to pay for ah. content on our phones. And once mm -hmm. everybody in the world was sort of used to that, the Times was able to charge us and we paid in a way that 10 years earlier, it seemed like it was very complicated to try to pay for something on your phone or that you didn't have a phone, in fact, um, that you could do that with. And so, the yeah, the Times... You know, learned all the lessons of this era, probably for better and worse, absorbed all the lunatics, including me, who had sort of worked in this wide open digital world, spat a lot of them out again. But that's that's the New York Times. Uh, a lot of lunatics like Ezra Klein and Swisher, just yeah. nuts. Absolutely. No one <laughs> should ever even. hire these people. But yeah. honestly, people who it is kind of interesting, though, because it was people who had kind of learned their trade on the Internet, who didn't necessarily have the Times' core values about what journalism ought to be, but had, but in some ways had come up raging about Thomas Friedman columns and hated the Times, right? Yeah, but these are pretty serious people. I mean... Oh, for sure. You for know sure. what I mean? Oh, serious people, but not creatures of the New York Times, I think. And it's, you know, it's true yeah. of them, it's true of me, it's true of getting Corey Sika, who helped found Gawker, a bunch of other people who sort of went to the Times for a while, Taylor, the reporter named Taylor Lorenz. So that that's a great blend in a way, and it works. It works beautifully, right? No, they, I think everybody, you know, the as like the sort of politics of media got very intense in the summer of 2020. One of oh, the yeah. things that happened, I think, is that the Times sort of tore itself apart in public, in part because right. it okay, had hired lots you. of people who had different values and thought differently about journalism and didn't have a kind of internal consensus or set of values and really tore itself apart a bit over. And actually, all, virtually all the people you mentioned, I think except for Ezra, are no longer at the Times. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ben Smith. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
I want to ask you about something uh, about Cambridge Analytica. I, I think I heard you with Kara Swisher, so I should remember if she's not with the Times. And you were talking about how the myth that Cambridge Analytica and I guess uh, the, the St. Petersburg um, Russian group, what was that called? Oh, the, the Internet Research Agency? Yeah, the Internet Research Agency did not affect the election. I'm, I'm not I'm not arguing with you here, but I didn't I didn't really understand the explanation of that. Sure. To to prove it. Let me tell you what I heard. I thought I heard you say huh? is that the Russians through the Internet Research Agency took out ads and famously they bought them in rubles. You know, the Facebook prides itself in having like all the data in the world, but they couldn't put rubles together with a foreign <laughs> foreigner buying ads, which is illegal <laughs> yeah. political ads in an American election. So. But you say that they took out a lot fewer ads than the Trump campaign on on Facebook. But to me, that's not necessarily a proof point. Because, of course, the Trump campaign is going to take out a lot of ads. They're the Trump campaign. And the Russians, I think, are trying not to get caught. <laughs> and probably, even though they're for some reason buying these in rubles, which I thought was a tell, <laughs> they can't buy as anywhere near as many as the Trump. But here's what I'm asking is the Mercer's set up that deal where Cambridge Analytica gave that Russian guy this data, right, of 85 million Americans, right? No, this is a bunch of... That's honestly, not true. Like, this is like a chat GPT summary of a bunch of different things that happened. Okay. The Russian Good. guy was a was a American academic who I think had been born in Russia and who these allegations re did ruin his career and his life. Oh, I'm so but, sorry. Didn't have any. Didn't, I mean, let, let me give you my that, version yeah. of this, and you can poke okay. holes in it because I'm not the world's okay. leading expert. But okay. I think like there is this after the 2016 election for totally reasonable reasons. Well, actually, let me start here. WikiLeaks was in does appear to have been Russian directed and was like the most successful intelligence sure. operation in history. Had a in recent history had a huge impact on the campaign. Absolutely. The Russians did really meddle in ways that were illegal and messed up, and they also. In a, in much less meaningfully, started a bunch of Facebook accounts that took out ads on Facebook. But you know, if like it's like if you watch, you know, say your wife, you're watching TV for 24 hours and you see 97 ads for Donald Trump and one for some weird other thing that sort of supports Trump. Like that's kind of the relative impact of the Russian stuff. It's not that it didn't exist. It's not that it wasn't their intention to help Trump because it was. Well, it was the only way for them to communicate with people to take out ads? Yeah. They, well, they also had lots of fake accounts. They were doing all sorts of stuff to fan the flames of American division and everything else. It's just, I think, I mean, this is my own perspective in retrospect. It's pretty clear we were massively doing this to ourselves and didn't really need their help. And I think if you look at how high impact WikiLeaks was, and, and, and then a third thing is Cambridge Analytica, which was a consulting company. I'm sure you dealt with this kind of company all the time in politics that made grand claims about how they had some cool technology that had swung the last election and mm -hmm. were con artists. And journalists not reasonably heard them say, we, we have this cool psychographic tools where we got all this data 
that we're not supposed to have from Facebook. And that part was true. And we swung the election this way and that. The British government actually did a very, very comprehensive report on them because they were meant to have also somehow worked with the Russians. The narrative never made any sense, but somehow they worked with the Russians. They stole Brexit. They stole Trump. And the British government looked into it in great detail and really found they were incredibly shady. They had a bunch of data they probably shouldn't have had that they'd gotten from this Russian-American academics research project. And they, and they, could not, they were, couldn't do any of the things they claimed to have done, had no impact on anything, except in you know, conning people like the Mercers out of money. And it is one of the situations which actually are fairly common in the media where a con man, so his con is so good that you sort of reporters fall for the marketing hype is, I think, what happened there. Okay, well, let me ask, let me ask you the, this part. Okay, so Manafort goes to Kalimnik, right? And you know this part of the, yeah, yeah. the, 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 of the Mueller report. And yes. uh, gives them the internal polling from the campaign in, yes. in Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And, of course, the election was won in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania by very narrow margins in each state. Yep. Now, if you have the data, and you're saying there was no cross-pollinization of the Cambridge Analytica data uh, between Cambridge Analytica and the uh, Internet Research Agency. Is that what you're saying? What the British government report found specifically was just that Cambridge Analytica was, just, was not doing anything any other, comp- any other ad agency on Facebook. They were doing the same stuff as everybody else. They were buying ads, and they didn't have special tools. They were just claiming to, to get, mon- just to get money from people like Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. But here's my, here's my question. They know who, what black people have expressed in Milwaukee, have expressed interest in um, Black Lives Matter, say. Okay? Couldn't the, uh, the St. Petersburg Internet Research Agency have used that data, but you're saying there was no interaction, but couldn't they use that data to target those people with, oh, you know, Hillary called young black men super predators? Because it was the undervote among blacks in Detroit and in Milwaukee and in Philadelphia that decided this election. I mean, everything, you know, close election, everything decided it. They could have. And I think like, but these are researchable, provable claims, right? Like social, there's a massive apparatus of social science that is meant to understand how thing one influences thing two. And the the Russians spent in the end, you know, they, they were, Trump was pouring massive, massive amounts of money into exactly the sort of racially divisive and voter vote suppressing ad campaigns that you describe. The Russians were spending an incredibly small amount of money doing the same thing, basically the same thing. I mean, it, it is, again, like wildly inappropriate and who knows criminal or not to give your internal polling to a foreign power that's trying to <laughs> oh, spend the election. That's like, certainly Nobody's illegal. defending that. But yeah. you didn't like need Donald Trump's super secret internal polling, by the way, to understand how the election worked, right? I just think that the sort of, I think there's a big gap between these sinister intentions and evidence that, that that's what swung the election as opposed to, I mean, I think you see it now, like a lot of people really like Donald Trump. Oh, no, no, no. But it was so close. And 84 million 
people's data and you can use that data to target those people much more precisely you if you have you know, that this is, data. I know that makes sense and you say it and people wrote that years ago, but it just turned out not to be the case. You could not okay. use that data. To, to, like no one ever did. They just, it just sounds so good that these con artists went around saying, we have all this magic data nobody else has. This is the conclusion of a lengthy British government report that had access to everything and looked deeply into it. Okay. Okay. Well, they're, they're, but I do I, think, I, I mean, this is just not to hijack your podcast with my hobby horse, but I do think there are these like, very, basically, there are these very like clear, satisfying ideas about what Russia did that are like partly true, but it just kind of seeped into the culture and a lot of the details are wrong. Well, those are dangerous things. And I wanted to clarify that. And uh, we did. But I'll I, stop with my head. That is a random specific hobby of horse of mine that I will now get off. Uh, it's a, okay. Well, I, I brought it up. So now you have semaphore, which is, is uh, you're attempting to do something very serious here, serious news. Although I looked, I checked on it today, and the big story, the head story was Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are not getting along with King Charles and uh, Queen Camilla. No, you, 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 that, is a, that is a false statement, although that sounds like a good story. That, that was a joke. Yes, thank God. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did just hit the website and say, oh, my God, what did somebody do? Oh, you <laughs> fell for my joke. I, I totally fell for it. Okay, well, I would say that certain people would say that was an obvious joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I used to run BuzzFeed, and people yeah. would say, do you know what's on the top of your website? And it was never a joke. So I guess I have a... <laughs> okay, I, I see what you're saying. No, that was a joke. No, you're, I, I, I've been sampling semaphore, and it's very serious. <laughs> and, very you know, serious. You would never lead with that, but I'm glad I got you there. All right. Uh, well, so... Uh, Facebook and all these other uh, Google and uh, all these other places that are getting zillions and zillions of hits put the BuzzFeeds and the Gawkers and the HuffPo's sort of out of business in at least a certain aspect. Yeah, of I think that that's business. exactly right. Okay. And what else do you want us to take from the book? You know, to me, and particularly in, for sort of, in sort of a political sense, the most interesting thing was to go back to that period that, you know, you were right in the middle of where there was this sense that like the new internet was a progressive place. Like fundamentally the internet is a place that's going to support Howard Dean and then it's going right. to bring us Barack Obama and it, and, yep. and it did. And Obama owned the internet, right? I mean, it, he wasn't, he wasn't like truly a populist, but the most populist position of that moment on the left was opposing the Iraq war and he did. And so he got, this surge of energy from, from, and for lots of other reasons too, including, you know, being the first major black candidate for president, you know, he, and, and having talent. Yeah. And being incredibly, yes. And being interesting and charismatic and young, There's a I thing, mean, all these you know, things. talent, talent. Yes. Just in being Barack Obama. <laughs> so the internet loved Barack Obama. And it was just actually, if you were in those, in that way, Huffington Post was founded explicitly in part to get a Democrat the nomination in 08 or to the presidency in 08. <laughs> Was it the nomination? And, and so there was this assumption that this is just, and then, you know, Obama visits Facebook in 2011, just kind of to say thanks. And it was like, it's like visiting Madison, Wisconsin. You don't have to explain that Facebook is full of Democrats. It's just obvious in that moment, because that's where college kids go. And then 
you know, a few just a few years later, it's equally obvious that Barack Obama isn't the apogee of this whole new digital media. It's Donald Trump. And, and when I went and kind of looked back, I guess the two things that I, really surprised me, one were just how much the people who created this new right-wing internet were there all along. Andrew Breitbart, one of the key figures, co-founded Huffington Post. The founder right. of 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's offices for a while. The founder Jesus of the Proud Christ. Boys also founded Vice. Right. And on and on. And, you know, Steve Bannon was hanging around. That's a that Shonda. Scene. Boy, what a Shonda for the Goyam. Indeed. <laughs> um, Goyam being the people in that business at that time. <laughs> so I, don't know, I, don't know. I never know how like Jewish to get on, on these podcasts. I guess I started pretty Jewish here. Um, I am Jewish, I should say. So all those people are there all along. And, and the things that we perfected, like the things that we obsessed about in terms of like figuring out traffic and following traffic where it led to a point, but to the point where you're still doing journalism, this new right-wing populism was just perfectly tuned to just follow the energy wherever it led. And who cares about the old rules and the old institutions? You know, if, if immigration, which the Republican, the anger about immigration that the Republican Party had sort of kept in a box, if that was what got the traffic, Breitbart was going to follow it kind of to its logical conclusion, you know, of a story about an undocumented immigrant killing someone is the most read thing on their site. They're just going to keep yep. doing them. Yep. Trump the same. And then the other thing was this style globally, really, of populist right-wing politics, where the style is to say something really transgressive, whether it's a lie or something shocking or insulting, in order to generate intention and conflict and to show that you're not one of these insiders, as Trump did all the time. Facebook was perfectly tuned to amplify that. Facebook was technically structured to amplify what they called engagement, which really meant if I post something stupid and racist and you say you're a racist and then I comment, no, you're a racist, the machine says, wow, these people are having such a great engaged conversation. That Let's show this content to more people. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that one because it's gotten, gotten a lot of clicks already. No, you're racist. And that was essentially became the entire substance of Facebook by you know, 2017. Let me ask you, uh, the court, the Supreme Court recently just came uh, down with a decision on a couple cases about that weren't specifically about Section 230, but kind of were. You know what I'm talking about, right? Section 230. I do. Is, I know what Section 230 is. Yeah. Well, the court just came out on uh, to a, a couple of families whose relatives, I think kids, uh, were killed by uh, Al Qaeda, uh, were sued two different Internet providers for putting out these stories about Al Qaeda uh, that were kind of promoting Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what they were. There were some big, whether it was Facebook or not. But it's the it's the thing of these uh, Facebook knows exactly what it's putting out. Its algorithms are putting out to people what will keep them engaged, and the algorithms know you better than you know yourself, right? Because they they know every click you've ever made, right? Yeah, that's that, right. Uh, okay, so if they know and they know from that that if someone is like loves to be agitated. They'll agitate them <laughs> and uh, to keep them on. And so they'll feed them something that just ain't true. They'll feed them, you know, this is uh, why a lot of people think that elites drink the blood of uh, children that they've uh, kidnapped and tortured. Yeah. 
if, if Facebook knows what it's sending out, if the algorithm knows that it's doing that, uh, I don't know where Facebook gets to say, we don't know what we're sending out. Do you have an opinion about 230? I mean, so 230 is the foundation of like the whole internet as we know it, basically. Yeah, it was in the Internet Decency Act of like 1995 or something, right? Yeah, and it's and, and it's like this structural layer. Like if you ever had a blog and wrote a blog, the company that hosted the blog can't be sued if you say something stupid. And if they could, they wouldn't have, they, you know, you couldn't have had a blog ever. That, and then that translates into social media. If you ever posted a YouTube video or watched a YouTube video, that only exists because YouTube can't be sued, you know, for the content on your video. It's a platform. It's not a publisher. Right. And I think if you think the internet, digital media, like if you have any position that is not, we really ought to just go back. And, you know, the last 25 years were a total mistake. I mean, I sympathize with that. The, the very simplistic, we should abolish Section 230 stuff doesn't make any sense, I think. And, mm. and, I, and I don't think that sort of like, we've got to find a metaphor from the 20th century for what is a Facebook or a, or a YouTube. Like, I think it's a new, we're in a, you know, it's a new thing. It's a new kind of thing. And that said, the, the principle of the platforms is, well, this means we should have no accountability forever for anything we do. <laughs> right. You know, I don't, that's obviously not tenable either. And so I think the actual solutions tend to be pretty complicated and in the middle, which I realize is kind of an unsatisfying point of view. Well, uh, I'd like to, like, give me a element of a complicated solution. Platform, you know, there, there's legislation that says that platforms with more than 100 million users, which is very few, have to report regularly to Congress in great detail on exactly what's happening inside their platforms so that regulators can have transparency and can see what's going on. Like, because that's mm -hmm. the thing that doesn't exist right now. But if you pass okay. that broadly, like you've got to, you know, not everyone, like you and I should probably not be writing reports, regular reports to Congress on what's happening on our own Twitter yeah, well, account. So, you know, so I think there's... killing to any new thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's, uh, that's one. I mean, the most interesting thing that's happening right now, I think, is sort of a slightly different angle on this, which is if you watch the TikTok hearings, a lot of what legislators asked the CEO of TikTok what, it was uh, basically, you guys run a similar service in China, but in China... There's no sex. There's no violence. Everything is very, very wholesome. Why can't we have that here? And, you know, the answer is because they have an authoritarian government that totally controls the Internet. <laughs> but, I, but I think that oh. there is actually a lot of interest <laughs> in the United States and in the West. I mean, I think that there, you know, there was this old perception that you could not control the Internet. Bill Clinton famously said that what China was trying to do was like trying to nail Jello to a wall. Like that just turns out to be wrong. You can, technically. And I think there's a lot of appetite in the West, and this freaks me out a bit, but is also clearly happening in real, to say, hey, look, like in China, they've got this thing under control. That like it's not in principle particularly hard, harder to regulate the internet than it is to regulate like fisheries, which I don't know much about either. Mm -hmm. And I think the place you're seeing that first is pornography. There's a bill in Utah. There's a, there's actually new legislation in France to say that pornography should be age-gated. And actually, if you ask people, should 11-year-olds be able to like watch hardcore pornography? Everybody says no. And if you have a vote in a state legislature on that, it's 100 to zero. And right. I think that you're going to see that start to take effect in a real way over the next year or two. And I think that once, you know, first they come for the pornographers, right? And then I think you'll start right. to see more serious regulation of the rest of digital media. Well, 
congratulations on this thing. Um, so what else do I, what else would you like me to ask you? See what, I, this is, this is a seamless, uh, podcast. Some, 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 some what else questions. would you like me to ask you? But I do that all the time. We didn't mention Matt Drudge. Matt Drudge is a big character. I mean, I think, I think the sort of prehistory of this whole moment that I was writing about, which is the early aughts in New York, it begins there. The prehistory of that really is Matt Drudge, who's, again, like, it's, and I, I at least imagine that you feel some of this too, which is that the sort of 90s media, which were these self-righteous, self-important gatekeepers who got lots of things wrong and never admitted it, were kind of loathsome. And it was incredibly exciting, actually, to try to, to, to find forms of media that challenged that. And I think there was a huge appetite for that in the audience. I mean, Air America, was, which, you, which you did, was that. And Drudge was another thread of an attack on the media establishment, essentially, who, you know, came out of the sort of right-wing fever swamps of the right water, white water and the Clintons, and essentially got a tip that Newsweek was trying to decide in one of these classic kind of ga decisions gatekeepers used to get to make, uh, whether or not to publish a story about the president having an affair with an intern. And he basically took it upon himself to make that decision for them. Mm -hmm. And really both made himself very famous and, and, and really shook gatekeepers' confidence in their ability to kind of keep the gate, which is a big shift, I think, in, you know, for better and for worse. And I think sometimes it felt for better, right now it probably feels for worse in how the internet changed media. That I mean, there are all these arguments, there are constantly arguments happening in places like the New York Times, but like, should we write the story about this woman, Tara Reid, who says Joe Biden sexually assaulted her? And, and my view on that was always like the stakes are way lower than you think. You're arguing about this as though your readers will have not already heard this somewhere and be trying to put it in, understand it, put it in context. And you're having these decisions as though the only source of information they have is the print New York Times dropped on their doorstep. And if you don't put something in there, it doesn't exist. Right. When in fact, love it or hate it and often hate it the same people you're talking to have all these other sources of information you, and, and the best you can do often is help them navigate that stew of stuff. That's right. That's right. Imagine that you're, yeah. So that's, and it's a tough, that's a very tricky position. She, was, that I think so she said, uh, laudatory stuff about Putin and how masculine he was. There, there was some stuff that she was saying that was pretty, um, out there and discrediting to her, I thought. Yeah, the Times, you know, you can never, it's very, you know, you don't always get to the absolute bottom of things. But the Times wound up doing a very thorough story, you know, that I think people read and believed her a bit less having read it. Yeah. Drudge, okay, so here's my Drudge story. Uh, didn't have many of them. So I was at a White House Correspondence Center. I can't remember which one. And I did two of them. But so this is in the 90s. And uh, I got there to the hotel very late. So I had to shower and get in the tux, right? And uh, shave very fast. And I cut myself a little shaving, a little nick. Didn't realize that it was uh, bleeding uh, so much uh, when I got down to the uh, the ballroom. And then later in uh, the evening, I went over to see Alan Combs and mm. urge him to stand up to Hannity more. <laughs> and Kilmeade came over to me and had this argument with me. Brian Kilmeade from Fox News, uh, which, you know, was uh, somewhat of a heated argument. I went, okay. So Drudge uh, wrote a thing that I was seeing after arguing with Kilmeade. We had a fight, fist fight 
and that I was bleeding. <laughs> and I thought, I don't like this. <laughs> Wait, did he, did this go on the website? Yeah. And did you, I mean, you could, and this isn't a section 230 issue. That's defamation. You could have sued Matt Drudge. I suppose so. No, I just didn't feel like it was worth it. <laughs> and I, I bet. Yeah. It's a very strange experience, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's worse than I was arguing with my daughter's, um, you know, a boyfriend. But um, it was just I just would see things like this all the time. Yeah. And I just was just hated it. And I was a victim of it uh, in a bigger way later. So anyway, um, uh, congratulations on this thing. Uh, it, uh, which is a book. Things a book. Traffic. The thing is a book. So far as I can Thank tell. Thank you, and it's 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 really good to talk to you. Yeah, good talking to you. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.